Okay. So for those who watch this, like if you were going to answer, like be honest, I have asked you three questions. How many of you ever felt the way I did? How many of you walk into school or church every day and wonder if anyone really cares? Because I feel like I'm always having to initiate the conversations a lot when other people are talking because I feel like people hardly ever come to me and I'm always having to go to them. And the second quest is, or how many of you wonder whether you're wearing, wonder whether you're wearing the right clothes, listening to the right music, or watching the right TV shows to relate to the others? Because I want to be able to like what I like without facing criticism. And the third one is, or how many of you ever been hurt when you found out about a party or social you were never invited to, even by seeing it on social media? But trust me, during high school, I saw a lot of pictures about with parties no one ever told me about. The thing is, growing up in school, even though I had friends, they never made me feel like, you know, one of them. I mostly saw everyone at school or school-related events like football games, homecoming, prom, but not anything outside of school like parties. I mostly just felt left out, and I felt like they didn't really understand, no matter how many times I tried to explain it. I want to thank Ryan Lee for that introduction to our Love First podcast this evening, and you are going to get to hear more of the conversation that he had with our producer, Nolan Huber-Rhodes, directly after the podcast. If you are new to us, we want you to know what we're doing here. We are seeking to catalyze courageous conversations to help us revolutionize the way that we love. Uh, if you're returning, thank you for coming back, and especially for this second in our series on disabilities. Uh, we would ask you, as usual, to like, subscribe, and share so that more people can join the conversation. So one year ago, one year ago, June 10th, 2019, just a few minutes from my house here in Dunwoody, Georgia, an excavator hit something as it was digging in the new extension of Brook Run, a local park. And as the excavator slammed into something in the ground, people knew what it was. The construction workers were anticipating the possibility of finding foundation fragments, foundation stones from what was then sadly named the Georgia Retardation Center. Started in 1968 in this suburb of Georgia, it actually had a history of very progressive treatment and therapy. In fact, many people that worked at that center over the course of its 30 years, it was closed in 1997, that during those 30 years, people can still to this day tell the story, nurses, therapists, of extremely progressive ideas that were implemented there. But... As you read the history of this center, which was finally demolished in 2007, and as the park continues to expand, they come across these foundation stones. You see, as you begin to excavate the story, you see the other side that is so typical of the stories of disability in this country. Because you see, even at a center as progressive as this one was for its time, there are stories of abuse, mistreatment, and suspicious death. This is not uncommon. And as I mentioned last week in the first uh, edition of this series, my friend Phil told me that I needed to start excavating. Excavating my own heart, my own mind, my own life, my own thoughts, my own biases, and Start excavating what is available as far as resources to begin learning the story of this nation in regard to disability, including my own community. So what I want to ask is a question that relates to this very moment in our history. Because you see, right now, in our nation, 
we are convulsing over injustice and brutality. Specifically, we are convulsing right now over the history of injustice of police brutality. We right now, in just the last few months, are speaking of name after name after name that now is in conversations from living rooms to barber shops to Washington, D.C. We know these names. Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. But we know these names because of tragedy. We know these names because they all include some form of either racist intent, white supremacy, or along with that, police brutality. These are not new problems in our nation. These are specifically not new problems to our communities of color. But right now our nation is convulsing. And so I'm a pastor and I love that God has given me that opportunity. So I want to slow down this podcast for a moment. And I want to stop and just say, first of all, that our nation isn't just convulsing. Our nation is crying, weeping, grieving angry, and appropriately angry, righteously angry. There is no reason to tell anyone that they should not be angry about injustice and brutality. It is that kind of righteous anger that the Lord is talking about in Ephesians chapter 4 where he says, be angry and sin not. And if you want to see an outstanding message from a local pastor here in Atlanta, go to the Renaissance Church of Christ. Watch the sermon from last week from Dr. Orpheus Hayward. And listen to this message about God's permission to be angry. To be angry and sin not. That anger is the appropriate response to injustice and brutality that is not met with justice. So let's take a moment for each other. Let's open our hearts to each other. Let's listen to each other. And take a moment with me, if you would again, to say their names. These three representative of count. Ahmad Arbery, just say it. Don't let him or his name or his family drift away. Say it with me, Brianna. Brianna Taylor, just say it. Say it with me, George Floyd. Just say it. Don't let their names or their families, or their injustice slip from your heart or from your mind and let it motivate your action in your commitment to justice. So why do we bring that out in a podcast about disability? Because I want to ask this question. Should the church protest? That question has been brought up to me multiple times over the last several weeks. Should the church protest? And as you can imagine, not everyone answers that question the same way, right? Some people are like, absolutely. Is that even a question? When Jesus Christ himself said that the weightier matters of our faith are, number one, justice. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That this rises to the top when the prophet asks the question, hey everyone, what does God require? And the very first on the list is justice. Many people would say, is that even a question? Other people would say, oh no, that's not the church's mission. 
The church should stay out of politics, stay off the streets, stay out of these social concerns. So, as we listen to each other, we might ask, well, which is it? Should the church protest? Well, I believe in the intersectionality of justice. We will see our answer in the life and teachings of Jesus and in the story of disability in our nation. I want to direct your attention to some scripture. First of all, I'll be reading from Psalm 10. In Psalm 10, I'll begin in verse 12. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me into account, but you, God? You see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the, desi hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that the merely earthly mortals will never again strike terror. That scripture written nearly three millennia ago sounds like it could have been written this morning or last night. This, this is the heart of God. And did you notice that the psalmist said that when God hears the grief and the hurt and the pain of the oppressed, the afflicted and the terrorized, it says he takes it to hand. Not just to mind, not just to heart, but to hand. God takes it to action. So, we should not be surprised that in our faith of understanding that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, would it surprise us that we would see Jesus taking the afflictions of the oppressed to hand, taking it to action? There's a story in Scripture that is related to us four times. It's related in the Gospel of John in chapter 2, but in the other three Gospels, it is all related to Jesus' final week of ministry. He makes a triumphant entry into Jerusalem and then ends up at the temple. I'm going to read to you a couple of these accounts. I'm going to start with the account in John's Gospel. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So, he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. But then, those who were his opponents responded, what sign can you show us to prove that you have authority to do this? Now, here's what I want us to note, that when Jesus literally takes to hand the whip, right? What did the psalmist say? That God will take the plight of the oppressed to hand. Jesus literally takes the hand, takes the whip to hand, 
He drives out these money changers. He flips over the table. He causes economic distress in what he is doing. His opponents say, what right you got to do that? Who gave you permission to approach this this way? If you've got a problem with what we're doing, why did you have to protest our actions this way? Now, this is not lost on the other gospel writers. Here is the Matthew account. Jesus entered the temple courts, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Now, after Jesus addresses this injustice in the temple, watch what happens next. Pay attention in Matthew's gospel. Ready? Ready? Then the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. You see, Jesus addressed injustice to make room for healing. Without the addressing of the injustice that was going on in the house of God, the disabled would not have been able to come for healing. But when his opponents saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what the children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. But haven't you ever read that from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth praise? You see, they come to him and they say to Jesus, what are you teaching the children? By coming in here and doing that kind of stuff, what are you teaching the children? She said, he said, I'm not teaching the children anything. The, teach, the children are teaching you something. They're teaching you that you ought to have a different perspective on what just took place. Why, why were the children rejoicing? It's because people were being healed. The same story in Mark chapter 11. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, but Mark gives a little more context. You realize this is the last week. This is the last week before his crucifixion. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and Mark gives an itinerary update. Listen, listen to this. An itinerary update. You know what I mean by that? He, he tells us where Jesus is on the journey and kind of what's going through Jesus' mind. Here's what the Bible says. That as soon as Jesus got to Jerusalem, it says in Mark 11, 11, he entered Jerusalem and he, and he went into the temple courts. But he looked around at everything and since it was late, he and his disciples went to Bethany. Bethany's just a couple miles out of town. But I want you to think about this. You ready? Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that the temple is a house of prayer. He knows it represents the presence of God. And because he knows what's coming and his heart is heavy with it all, he goes straight to the temple. But when he gets there, he sees what's going on there and he thinks, let's just go get some rest. When he returns the next morning, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. This one ends a little different. When they saw what he did, Jesus said, my house is a house of prayer for all the ethnicities, all the nations. Look it up for yourself. You can do this now on the internet. The Greek word for nations is ethnos. My house is a house of prayer for the one, one family of humanity. All the nations belong in my house. But you, he said, have made it a den of robbers. You have made economics the ticket into the house. The house that is meant for everyone. And what does Jesus say? Get out. 
Let them in. Watch how the people respond. The whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So when injustice is addressed by God, by Jesus, in the house of God, in the community, in the temple courts, what starts happening? People are healed and others begin to realize the essentiality of the message of the gospel. If the church wants to be a place of healing and if the church wants anyone to listen, then yes, the church protests injustice. We take it in hand just like God, just like demonstrated in Jesus Christ. If we're following Jesus, he will lead us to protest injustice. And it led to healing. Well, what about protests then in what we might say is the story of disability in this nation? Have you ever thought to yourself that the way the world looks now, it probably always looked? No, I don't mean, I don't mean visiting the pyramids. I'm not talking about that. But you know, if right now today you walk up to a building and you see a little panel on the wall and there's a little insignia on it that means that someone can touch it if they are not able to open the door by themselves and the door is automatically open. Are you familiar with that? Are you familiar with large bathroom stalls in public places with, with railings that are unique for supporting someone who would need them to navigate a restroom? Are you familiar with elevators in public places that are wide enough, large enough to accommodate someone who needs some kind of a device, perhaps a wheelchair, to make their way around? I'll bet that nearly everywhere you go, you see some evidence of the things I've just described. Have you ever watched construction crews in your neighborhood go along and literally with a jackhammer, jackhammer the concrete out of the end of a concrete walkway that used to be a raised curb? They jackhammer it out, they lower it like a ramp so that people who are navigating in wheelchairs or wheeled vehicles are making their way from one to the other in a smooth transition, which before was not possible. Are you familiar with these things? Are you familiar with these things? You say, yeah, I, I am. Well, how long have they been there? Well, depending on your age, you might say, I've never known life without them. At my age, I've known life without them. When I was a child, I went to schools that had no disability accessibility at all. Not in the restrooms, not at the doors, not at the sidewalks, not on the playgrounds. Nowhere. My entire childhood, if I went to a hotel ever, there was never anything at poolside that would help someone with a disability get into a pool. Ever. There were no buses or public transportation that had any wheelchair accessibility of any kind. This is in my lifetime. But as we begin to approach serious disability civil rights action, serious disabilities legislation in the early 70s, as I was leaving, uh, 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 coming into junior high and high school, it went right over my head. I never paid attention to it. I never really thought about it. And if I did see it on the evening news, which we watched religiously, I forgot it. It wasn't until my friend Phil says, you need to dig a little deeper. You need to excavate this experience that I began to realize that while I was living my life in what I thought was normal, other people were being oppressed by what I thought was normal. But there were people that were determined to change things. Laws were enacted in the 70s, the early 70s, specifically one of the laws was, that was enacted was called Section 504. This is a part of the Federal American with Disabilities Act. But this had no teeth to it. The act which stated that businesses and so on could not discriminate 
had no legal teeth to it, so there was no enforcement. In fact, when activists began to press for this enactment, they were stonewalled from the White House on down. Oh, it's too expensive. We can't rebuild every school in America. We can't expect every hospital to rebuild itself. We can't expect everybody to add elevators and all of this kind of stuff. And they rejected it time after time after time. Years and years and years of activism went into this challenging time. But people with disabilities themselves began to protest. In the early 70s, these protests took place around the nation. James Lebrecht, who is a producer who has been an activist in disabilities since the 70s, shared a story that illustrates this mightily. They had planned a protest in New York City. I'll get around to another part of that story in a moment. Look for it. But they planned a protest to circle their wheelchairs and a sit-in at a downtown intersection and at four in the afternoon and literally stop traffic in that intersection. And those of you that know anything about New York City, it shut down effectively the city. James wanted to be a part of it. But James was born with spina bifida. James was in a wheelchair. James was able to board a train to get downtown to the protest with astounding difficulty. But the difficulty increased when he got off the train. Because then, how does he get back to street level? My guess is that some of you listening to this have been to New York City. You may have ridden the subway. Some of you have maybe seen it caricatured in a particular uh, movie series or television series. Try to imagine being at the bottom, not of an escalator, not of an elevator, but a stairway coming up out of New York City's subway and trying to get to the sidewalk. You're in a wheelchair with zero disability access or assistance. Here is what James said. He said, I wanted so badly to get to the protest that I crawled out of my wheelchair and I pulled my body with my arms up on the first step and I pulled my wheelchair behind me and then to the second step and I pulled my wheelchair behind me. Step after step, I crawled, pulling my body pulling my wheelchair until I finally got to street level. I was so thankful to get to street level. I wanted to join the protest. But in retrospect, as I begin to look back, my own journey illustrated why we had to protest. This wasn't new. I wasn't new. I wasn't new to the issue. None of the people in the circle will knew. And in fact, the nation knew we're just unwilling to do anything about the injustice. If you go on the CDC website, you can look at their extensive resources in regard to disabilities. But one of the things that the research demonstrates is this. Ready? One in four Americans, 61 million are dealing with a disability of some form. That is 26% of our population, 1 billion people worldwide. It is the largest minority worldwide. And all they wanted was for the law that had already been enacted to be followed. It didn't happen. You'd think that would be enough, but it wasn't. So, they began to approach the chief of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. They petitioned over and over and over. They petitioned their uh, people, their senators and their representatives across the country. Nothing. From one president to the next, nothing. Until 
April 5th, 1977, a group of people with disabilities approached the office, the local office of Health Education and Welfare in San Francisco. They went in to meet with the director who would not meet with them. They asked the person working there, get us a meeting with the director. But they were refused. It was partway through that meeting where they said, we can't leave. If we leave this office, if we leave this building, we leave with nothing. And so they stayed. And they stayed. And they stayed. They stayed for 25 days. It became known as the 504 sit-in. Look it up yourself. They went through, some of them, a hunger strike. Now, you got to bear in mind, you're talking about people, many of them, with severe disabilities. They did not have their people to assist them. Some of them could not so much as even roll themselves to avoid getting bed sores. They're sleeping on floors. The government threatened them. They would set off fire alarms in the night, sometimes keeping them up 36 hours at a time. They cut off the electricity. One of the ways they communicated with the outside was some of the people that were with them that had disabilities knew sign language. So you know what else happened inside? The other people with disabilities inside began to learn sign language. They began to help one another. In fact, what they began to demonstrate is what everyone needed to know. Disabilities is not all there is to us. They matter, but we matter. One of the people that was in that particular sit-in said this. He said, what struck me is that if you did go to a public building that did have an elevator, we had elevator operators back then, and I'm old enough to remember that. And the elevator operators would look out at us when we were sitting there in our wheelchairs and say this. Get the wheelchairs inside. They didn't say, bring the people inside. That's when I realized we were nothing but the disability and no one wanted us. Well, this continued. The government threatened. The FBI threatened. And over time, people begin to get weary, but the support on the outside started to grow, and a coalition, the most unlikely coalition, came together. The Black Panthers started providing their meals free of charge. Yes, in San Francisco. They would bring a hot meal for dinner and then leave breakfast and lunch overnight for them to eat the next day. One of the representatives of the group inside said to the Black Panthers, but you have nothing, uh, you have no money, how are you helping us? And they said, we are helping because you're wanting to make the world a better, more just place. And that's what we want also. Well, finally, finally, it was stated that if they'd come to Washington, D.C., they would meet with them. How? They said, you bring Washington, D.C. here. So two senators did meet with them. It was like a remote hearing, a Senate hearing. The head of health, education, and welfare didn't come, but said a representative. The representative listened for a little bit and then actually left the room and locked himself in a bathroom. The senator went pushed open the bathroom door, drug the guy back out there, and made him sit and listen to the life and testimony of people with disabilities. Look all of this up. So they finally did determine, with public support, that they would go to Washington, D.C. 
people rallied around the nation. They provided the finances to get a team from that original San Francisco sit-in to go to Washington, D.C. Part of them left, part of them stayed. They stayed right there, and they continued their hunger strikes, and they continued their protest all the way to the end of a 20, 25 full days. They went to Washington, D.C., but when they got there, huh, no disability help. No disability access and no disability transportation. This was 1977. So, a union, a Teamsters union, rented vehicles, trucks, box trucks, and provided transportation. Do you hear this interesting coalition of people with disabilities, the Black Panthers? union workers, and yes, churches. Churches began to teach, to cry out, and to join the protest. Eventually, their voices were heard. New laws were signed and enacted. Now, I'm going to return to our question. Should we protest? Should we have said to James, James, I'm sorry, life's just tough all over. Maybe you shouldn't go downtown. Well, you do realize that there is a horrific history behind that question. Because what one of the protesters noted was this. They suggested, well, maybe we'll make homes for them, schools for them reviving the false notion of the Dred Scott decision in regard to race, separate, but always unequal. They said no. So the changes that you see today came about that way. I want to close with a little bit of a story behind the story. Because you see, the idea of just housing people, warehousing people, out of sight, out of mind, persists. And that protest in New York City took place not far from the Willowbrook State School in Staten Island. I want you to look that up on your own. The Willowbrook State School in Staten Island. Built to house over 4,000 people with disabilities. Stories of abuse and neglect begin to seep out into public view. News reporters, broadcasters, and finally documentarians would begin to come into the setting and see what's happening. At one point, though, built for 4,000, over 6,000 residents. Sometimes uh, one nurse to 30 to 50 severely disabled residents to feed them three minutes apiece. They found them lying naked on the floor, writhing in pain, covered in their own feces. One of the reporters said this, of all the things I'll never forget, it was the sound, the sound, the eerie sound, the cries. cries. One senator called it a snake pit. And in response to the civil rights laws that had already been passed, called for its closure in 1987. Are you hearing this? Are you hearing the dates you see, sometimes we think what we see now has always been. It hasn't. And what we see now is not sufficient. 
We still think the same way. Do you remember Ryan's three questions at the beginning of the podcast? We're still thinking the same way. No. We may not have in our local community a place where we would warehouse the disabled no matter how progressive that seemed to be. Yes, Willowbrook State School was closed, but there is still a cry in the community of families and people with disabilities that says, why don't you want to see us? Why don't you want to hear us? Why don't you want us? We're seeking to raise awareness. And so now you're going to get to hear some stories. You're going to get to hear Ryan's story. Not everyone who has a disability can advocate for themselves. So you're also going to get to hear the stories of some people from our church family, people who have disabilities, people who have family members with disabilities, and people who work full-time dedicating their life to people with disabilities. I want to thank you for joining our podcast. Thank you for joining God as he listens to and takes in hand the afflictions of the oppressed. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Nolan Huber Rhodes. I am joined uh, by a new friend. Uh, his name is Ryan Lee, and we are really excited uh, to be on uh, this episode and the special interview for the Love First podcast. I should note real quick, um, for, for our listeners who are um, church members or members of the North Atlanta church family, Ryan is uh, a part of the local Dunwoody community. And you know some dear friends of ours at church, right? The Phil and Evan Woody. Yeah, Evan is a really cool guy. Like He has a TBI. I know he doesn't speak, but he's really affectionate. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're just uh, super cool connections that I wanted to make sure that we uh, drew here. Uh, one of the reasons why we've invited Ryan to join us is because he's been doing this work as an advocate and as a person with autism for a long time now. Uh, and I personally came in contact with Ryan through uh, reading several of his articles about fair treatment of people with autism and uh in fact, in the comment section and in all the show notes and stuff, I'll make sure to link his uh, articles because they're really, really great articles. And we're going to kind of dive uh, into a little bit of what he's written about. But um, before I go on, I just want to uh, give Ryan the opportunity to, to introduce himself. So can you just introduce yourself and tell uh, listeners a little bit about who you are? Hi. Well, as you all know, my name is Ryan. I was diagnosed with autism when I was three years old. And also growing up, it was been really hard. Like, even before I knew I was diagnosed with autism, I always knew I was different from my peers. I always struggled just to understand why I couldn't be accepted or why I couldn't fit in or relate to the others. And it's been a real struggle. Like, my parents told me I had autism when I was like 14 or 15. It was before I started high school. And I was really ashamed because I tried to hide it, being like everyone else. But over time, I realized I couldn't be like everyone else. Could you just share a little bit about how you came to love writing and uh, maybe a little bit about your writing process or what your favorite types of writing is? Well, first, I write lyrically when it comes to rhyming. I first started writing when I started to describe all my friendships with my friends starting from elementary to high school. The first long poem I wrote was called Forever Friendship, describing how our relationships changed here and there, how, about how I felt personally. And then I wrote about uh, the bond between a human and their dog, and dogs aren't called man's best friend for nothing. So I called that poem The Forever Bond of Human and Dog, and it was a bit personally about the relationship I have with my dog. And I wrote a couple other thing, poems. One was called Life, Liberty, and Love. And I started writing here and there. So the poems I wrote, they're more like in a deep, emotional, personal level. How, how did you start um, applying some of your writing skills and things like that to um, advocacy and um, awareness about autism? When did that kind of start? 
Well, it all started in the last year. I think it was beginning of near to the end of 2018 because I felt like people need to understand that us autistics, we have thoughts, feelings, and emotions just like anybody else does. Mm. And uh, wow. So, I mean, starting just over a year ago, um, you've written several, I think, in my opinion, brilliant pieces um, on prominent kind of websites, awareness websites like Autism Speaks. Um, what are some of the other places that you've had an opportunity to write for? Well, there is the Aspergian, which also has a different name now. And there, I was on a podcast called Dudes of Future Past. It was with two Disney stars named Joey Bragg and Kurt Long. They're from the show Live and Maddie. That's such a great podcast name. Yeah. We, and I also we, and I also was on another podcast lately. My friend Maya Sundeminer runs called Hello World with Maya. She likes to talk about the perspectives of autism too. I also was on a podcast called Autism Live. Autism Live. With, I got with a woman named Shannon. I forgot her last name. But still Maya was on it too. So I've been trying to find ways to spread my advocacy. And don't forget I was also on special books by special kids also known as SVK with Chris Omar. He's a really wonderful guy. Yeah, that's awesome. I uh, actually watched that video, which can be found on YouTube, and we'll put in the links in this episode, um, which is, yeah, that was another great, great episode. And so there are plenty of resources, uh, kind of some homework for, for people after this conversation if you want to keep diving into um, and understanding uh, Ryan's perspective and the perspective of other people with autism, then those are some extra resources. And again, we'll link those in the show notes, but I want to um, start addressing some of the things that you, that I've read that you write about. Well, the thing is most people treat us people with autism as if we're not human with feelings, just like anybody else. Like there is one time they take advantage of us, you know, and that's really sickening. One of my friends who has autism was befriended by someone, but when they did something out of the ordinary, they put it on Snapchat or Instagram and the person was bullied because of it. It's not, it's not fair and not fun. We don't want to have to wear a mask in order to fit in mm. because I'm tired of masking because I just want to be myself. And still, for those on the spectrum, it can cause social anxiety. I cause them to hide themselves. The pressure of trying to fit in is so overwhelming. And there are some people who are expected to feel like they need to wear a mask in order to fit in, cause them to seek the approval of others. And not only do kids feel this, but adults feel this as well. Mm. And so rather than um, you needing you needing to quote unquote fake it to make it, perhaps um, society and other people actually need to make adjustments so that people don't have to be fake in order to live. <laughs> in this world, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, so one of the things I thought was really striking, this was an article on Autism Speaks from 2018 that you wrote, uh, where you said that um, you were learning, that you had just learned to love yourself. Can you tell us a little bit more about that journey uh, and what that meant for you? Well, it all started when I found this book called Autism Population One. Autism Adversity and to see it. It's by another autistic named Tyler McNeighbor. When I read the book, I realized that autism is nothing to be ashamed of. It makes me who I am. Mm. It was easy for me to love others, like making friends, but I didn't really love myself because I was still hiding my autism, you know, because I felt like if people knew, they wouldn't really accept me. And I still feel like a hard time fitting in. Like, there were a few people who knew. I mean, but... And also, I, I used to act out a lot all the time. Like, and I used to go in my own little world as a kid. Um, they, people used to call it dreamland because I find something to laugh at just to escape the pressure of just trying mm -hmm. to fit in. And also, the one thing that really makes me mad is the word retard. And trust me, that's my trigger word. Mm -hmm. it, it made me so mad. There was this one person that called it to me too many times. I got so mad. My adrenaline just flowed right to my body and I got so mad. I kicked him mm. and I got in trouble for it, but I felt like it was worth it because that word is just so offensive to people with a disability. 
to be clear, you were the one who got in trouble for yes. an aggression that was taken against you. Yes, I because being called a retard, it just triggers me. It just makes me so upset. And I understand how other people with disabilities feel this way when they're called that way. It's just really derogatory. And it's a package deal. There has been talk that, you know, there's been mad talk about people curing autism, but there has been also talk about what if we could separate the symptoms from autism. Like, have you ever heard of the show The Good Doctor? Yes, I love that show. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, the doctor Sean Murphy, he's really smart and also has savage syndrome. Like, they thought, like, what if they could separate his symptoms? Like, well, him being socially awkward and not being able to advertise muscle cues, but still being able to keep his smartness or whatever and his autism. <laughs> People need to understand that that's not how it works. I mean, the symptoms are like a package deal with autism. Either we're born with it or we're not, okay? So you just have to learn to work with us. Mm -hmm. So what if we don't pick up on emotional cues right away, okay? It's just how we are. And that's one of the things I have hard to deal with autism, not being able to pick up on emotional cues right away based on one's body language or facial expressions. And there are some who would just ditch you and don't want to be around you for one stupid reason or another. If only they could tell if we're doing something that's bothering them or make them uncomfortable instead of just leaving us in the dark, then we could try to fix it. It's not the end of the line. Yeah. But unfortunately, Nolan, some people just aren't really direct with how they're feeling. Mm. Mm. it's happened to me a couple times i mean i was just trying to have fun i met a new person and we seemed to hit it off pretty well but when i was trying to joke around i didn't know what made him comfortable and then, then he just ditched me and wouldn't answer my calls or and just kept walking away from me and he just wouldn't tell me why but obviously i heard he said he didn't want to hurt my feelings but newsflash leaving us in the dark does hurt our feelings Mm. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And you can keep going if you want. Uh, yeah. What else? What other questions did you have? Well, I, I, I did want to talk more about um, what you talked about with the good doctor and the, um, how the, the, what some would call symptoms of autism and, um, and smartness and who we are and all of that are all a package deal. Um, I wanted to, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Oh, um, the good doctor. There's one thing in the good doctor that really gets to me. You know, okay. you remember this character, Sean's neighbor, Kenny? Yes. Well, you see, even though Kenny provided general companionship for Sean, Kenny took advantage of Sean by eating his food and using his cable. And in season one, episode 17, when Sean brought a pizza to Kenny's apartment, Kenny was holding a small March Madness party and he didn't even invite Sean. Plus, he borrowed, I'd say stole, Sean's TV without even asking him. And he rejected Sean's company because of Sean's quirks with other people. And right. then kept Sean's pizza and shoved Sean out the door. I mean, no good person deserves to be treated like that. And that has happened to me once. Mm. Okay. And also, one, one of the myths that really bugged me is that us autistics having no empathy. I mean, mm. like for years, people depicted us as emotionally, socially clueless robots. But we do have empathy. We just show it in a different way. If only people could be more direct with how they're feeling, they'd be more likely for us to show it. People just don't realize that the more you get to know an autistic person, the more you realize how caring they could be, even if we do have some difficulties reading social cues. Mm. That's, that's, really, that's a really, really good point. And what you were talking about with the package deal uh, reminds me of, of something that I've heard from uh, people with disabilities for years, and that is... No, no, no. Like people always say, or often say, um, especially in Christian circles, they often say, well, um, you know, they'll be quote unquote cured from autism in heaven. And I just, I always it, just ask the question back. What if actually we get cured from thinking that you have to be one certain type of way? in the world that you have to act a certain type of way or think a certain type of way. What if actually um, God wants to change the way that, that we accept people and not change people so that they can be accepted. And, and I think that's such an important point. 
Yeah, the thing, the thing is, like, some people know you have to be a certain way in order to be accepted in society, and some force the way on others, like someone to hide their autism and ours. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not how it works. If you're really accepted to be someone's friend, you need to try and accept all aspects of that person. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And one uh, of the hardest things I have about having autism, is some people still tell me that I don't look autistic, and that makes me so angry. I feel like I have to respond to them. Well, how the heck am I supposed to look then? People making assumptions about you without knowing the extent of your struggles, it's like frustrating. Like having an invisible disability is really difficult because people expect you to be, you know, I don't like to say this word a lot, normal or act in ways that just don't feel natural. Therefore, then they don't cut you any slack when you make mistakes and they have high expectations of you based on your age and height. Those on the higher end of the spectrum, like myself, high expectations are placed on us. And you see, Nolan, some people are more understanding when they see physical symptoms associated with a disability, like if someone has a facial deformity or is in a wheelchair. And this is why it's important to educate others in this world. Still a lot of work to be done in this world. Still, I love the person I am, and I wouldn't change anything for the world. And I I wouldn't pretend to be something I'm not just to impress someone. But still, it's really tough to fit in a world that doesn't always fit you. Mm. That's a really, that's a really powerful statement. Yeah. The thing is, having an invisible disability is very challenging in many ways. The thing is, as with any other person on, on the spectrum, us on the high end of the spectrum, we still have significant challenges in our everyday lives that stand in the way of us living a comfortable life or succeeding in school or in the work world. And it's very infuriating and that it's hard for us. And we're tired of people telling us to change, keep on telling us that we need to be more appropriate and not discriminate against us like that. Our brains just work differently, and that needs to be respected. But unfortunately, people still see us autistics as broken people. Like, it's hard for us to find the right words to express what we want to say. And when people's disability can be invisible, we're very aware of our own difficulties, and we're extremely sensitive to others' negative reactions, which sometimes we take things very harder than others. Autism is just to characterize how our brain functions, not how broken it is. Also, some people just don't understand what it's like to be us, Nolan. They seem the worst about us autistics, like we're stalkers, like if we message you out of nowhere because if we heard you about somewhere and we just want to be friends. And there's also a stereotype that we're violent. We just have sometimes our emotions just work differently and are capable, lacking empathy, which I already talked about. We're just getting tired of these stereotypes. They always assume we're the wrong, and it's just so infuriating. And remember when I said about the stigma about autism? Yeah. And that was actually going to be my last question is you write about stopping the stigma. What are some of those stereotypes that come along with the stigma? Yeah. Us lacking empathy. That's one of the biggest things about the stigma. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes we get curious about certain things. Like sometimes we ask so many questions that we don't know if we're going into deep and, even when we're just trying to have fun or get to know you. It's just not, we autistic don't want to feel the need to hide anything. Some of us may look different or act different, but we have feelings the same way else. For example, I get a bit irritated when I get interrupted or when someone just let me finish speaking. And there was this one time when I was playing a game, we call it apples to apples with people. And when someone wasn't paying attention to their turn, it kind of annoyed me because it doesn't, make the game flow along if you're not paying attention to your turn and one of the biggest things is there's this big fuss about personal space one way or the other and that doesn't mean we're trying to hurt anybody i admit that i'm a big hugger but we don't always understand the rules of how far away to stand or when to stop talking or start asking questions and i i admit that i'm not very good at first impressions a lot but that just doesn't stop me from trying to make new friends uh, because things like aggression meltdowns or hugging impulses, which I have, people view autism as a source of annoyance, disappointment, or worse, in different degrees. There just needs to be more tolerance in this world. Mm. Still a lot of work to be done in this world, Nolan. Still a lot of work to be done, Ryan. Man, thank you so much um, for just sharing that part of your heart. And uh, I just, I want to say, I want to make sure uh, everyone hears this. The reason that that Ryan and I are even having this conversation is because Ryan reached out to me on Facebook after uh, seeing a video that I produced, and he was reaching out to me because 
uh, he wanted to share with me some articles and, and get to know me. And here we are. And the reason that we are, are getting to be blessed to hear from Ryan is because he took an initiative that a lot of people wouldn't take to reach out, to make a new friend, to put himself out there. And that just is another example of, um, of, of how, how autism can be such a gift uh, if we learn to actually adjust the world that we live in to be more accepting and inclusive. But first I know